I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl and I'm really happy to um really invite what the spirit of wise girl is about inviting um your inner wisdom to shine your inner wise girl or guy i'm not the wise girl per se um although some people have accused me of that um (laughs) but i do have a wise woman joining us today um named Rhonda mcgee she is the professor of law mindfulness and social justice teacher and advocate at uh, the University of San Francisco. She is an internationally recognized thought and practice leader on integrating mindfulness into higher education, law, and social justice. A fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, she's also a member of the Board of Advisors of the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness and the Board of Directors for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, and she can explain more about that if you're not familiar with it, but it's exciting what they do. Um, Professor McGee is the author of numerous articles, including Educating Lawyers to Meditate, 
the way of color insight, understanding race and law, effectively using mindfulness-based color insight practices, and a forthcoming book on mindfulness and social justice to be published by Tarcher uh, Pirji, a member of the Penguin Random House Group. Rhonda McGee, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. And congratulations on, uh, you know, getting that uh, book birthed. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been, it's been its own journey. This is my first book, so I'm excited about it and also glad it's progressed to the stage that it has, that it's, you know, getting closer and closer to being released uh, so I'm, I'm excited about it too, thanks. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it will, um, as we do with the Bodhisattva vow, you know, uh, for the benefit of all beings, right? You know, sort of uh, anytime one puts that down on paper, it can it can disseminate the wisdom there. So mm, may it be so. Yeah, may it be so. And, and, and may we also, um, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, when we were off camera, uh, my sort of lens is this business of applied mindfulness. Yes. That is too great mindfulness into our daily lives? How do we integrate mindfulness in our social justice lens? How do we integrate a social justice lens or a collective lens into our individual um, sort of sometimes myopic and sometimes necessarily so uh, lives and broaden it a little bit? And one of the things that's on the table today um, is uh, something that's really galvanizing the nation politically right now and you being a law professor, um, I thought might want to just share your thoughts about what's happening right now um, in terms of the Supreme Court. Mm, yeah, so uh, thanks for asking, Francesca. Today is a day that we're hearing um, from the third accuser uh, to bring allegations of um, some sort of sexual misconduct against the current Supreme Court nominee, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And so, um, it's quite a day, actually, for those of us who've been um, at all involved in law. Uh, but actually, for I think for Americans generally uh, who've been paying attention to this, it's it's really a day where it's hard to take in the news that we're hearing. Um, you know, what we're hearing are the kinds of allegations of assault and misconduct and disrespect and harassment. Um, that unfortunately are more common than we like to think in uh, many, many women's experiences in the US and around the world. And so, uh, and so that suggests on the one hand that um, while it's particularly sort of um, shocking, if you will, to have someone at the level of a Supreme Court nominee uh, being um, alleged to be to have been involved in these kinds of activities. Um, on the other hand, we we shouldn't really be surprised because there's so much evidence. This is the era of the Me Too movement, but even before that, so much evidence if we're willing to pay attention that um, that these traditional ways that women are vulnerable to being, um, you know, sort of taken advantage of sexually assaulted across a spectrum of, you know, just um, just some unwanted touching or contact all the way to uh, the worst, most invasive types of uh, um, assaults. That spectrum is broad and we've known 
that many, many women are vulnerable and have been um, victimized uh, in some ways at some points in our lives. I am one of those women. And so, again, it's, it's a difficult time uh, to be reminded how prevalent it is, to see just how the system is responding in ways that are very um, apparently self-protective of uh, the the can the uh, the nominee and to see the nominee and the team around um, the nominee just really defend and not really open up to investigate what there is to be known about whether or not these allegations have some substance. And so um, just to see that level of defendedness and unwillingness perhaps to open to what may be known is its own shocking, you know, sort of um, revelation. And for many, again, for women who have, and not just women, for those of us who have been victimized in any way, to see a person who has the courage to come forward with really nothing to gain by doing so, um, be met with, with such resistance in terms of the systemic failure to simply do the work that we've come to expect of invest of, of you know people in, in capacity in, in in positions of authority we expect them simply at a minimum to be willing to investigate and so instead we're hearing charges of you know all kinds of charges against the people who are simply brought these chart these allegations forward so it's a tough really tough time for on a lot of levels for me as a woman who happens to have had some experience with being assaulted. But all, and for me as a law professor, having students who are coming to me and people in positions like me with really hard questions about what is going on. Um, I just happened to have sat in and participated in on a, 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 to some extent on a discussion about these, uh, these charges and the Kavanaugh um, uh, uh, nomination and the gender justice issues that are coming up just yesterday. So this is, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very rich time for me on many, many different levels. And I am uh, just hopeful that uh, one way or another, uh, we as a society will learn something about how to go forward more, more carefully, more respectfully, with, with greater commitment to women, for, to justice for women and for other victims of these types of uh, assaults. Uh, from here. Hopefully we'll go forward having learned something, but for now it's a bit challenging. <laughs> it is a bit challenging. I think it's very triggering for a lot of us who have mm -hmm. experienced um, anything from an unwanted advance to um, a full out, you know, um, assault or um, some repetitive form of that yeah. as many exactly. as many people uh, have also suffered. But what you what you bring to the table is inquiry. And what I think is so interesting about um, particularly Vipassana meditation, but also about the law is this idea of drilling down to truth, right? Like the mm -hmm. slogan of my the slogan of my school was Veritas, right? Truth, right? Mm -hmm. But it was interesting because it was about truth almost as if it were a fixed entity as opposed to the process of inquiry. 
right? So we're really mm -hmm. wanting to look at what is the process of inquiry and a lot of the uproar that I see right now is that that process of inquiry societally or systemically in many cases is being prematurely aborted. And so when you're not even engaging in that dialogue to begin the path and first step of process and inquiry, then you cannot um, actually see through to fruition what the true outcome would be and do what the Buddha said, which is get rid of our ignorance and delusional thinking and see what's really here. Exactly. Exactly. That unwillingness to really inquire and to accept what there is to be seen, to see and then accept what there is to be seen is just profoundly disturbing actually to me. Um, and also not, not entirely surprising because what we're really seeing are the ways that on the one hand, we do have, we have these systems and processes um, that in some ways have been the envy of many people around the world, many countries that don't have the kinds of commitments to rule of law, to um, a doctrine of equality, um, due process, these sorts of norms, um, commitments to investigating truth, uh, investigating claims, um, and following the truth where it might lead, whether in a formal court of law situation or just um, in the everyday way that we translate those commitments to um, um, the projects in our, um, our, our, our general civic life, right, or work world. Um, so we, we tend to be proud of America for the way in which we have over many, many decades over our history, um, fought to expand the reach and application of these commitments so that everybody is included in their protections. And to see, though, that we still have uh, evidence that despite the fact we have these promises and these systems and commitments on the one hand, we also have entrenched systems of power um, entrenched systems of um, cultural coding and uh, you know different ways that we systemically privilege certain people, certain groups, certain types of people, and disadvantage in systemic and uh, in personal, interpersonal, and systemic ways other people. And so, I think that's what we're seeing here. You know, the system is only as effective as uh, the culture is. Uh, actually, and we often don't realize how much it is the case that whatever happens in law and policy um, arises out of commitments that are really operating at the ground of the at the level of the culture itself. And so, to the degree the culture, our culture, um, has not fully embraced the ongoing call to provide um, real justice and real equality for everybody, including women. Uh, we're not going to see that in the system. If the culture is lagging and unconfused and embattled and polarized about the roles of women, about our entitlement to full access and opportunity, then of course you're going to see law and policymakers um, similarly uh, conflicted. And, um, and in some instance, we're seeing uh, even more because there are, again, legacies of entrenched patterns by which we've 
traditionally said men are the ones we trust with government and men are the ones we trust in law. And so therefore we have this kind of appalling scenario of such a widespread disparity between uh, in terms of the gender dimensions of what is happening, playing out on the, on the legal stage and the political stage right now, the disproportionate representation of white men relative to all other sorts, white, you know, cis cisgendered um, men, uh, uh, at least publicly heterosexual, so heteronormativity, there is a lot that just tells us how entrenched those patterns are. And they're, you know, the system is not a match if our culture hasn't unpacked um, and truly created a world where everybody is entitled to all the protections that our system might afford. So here we are. Right. And so here we are. And, you know, I'm in New York City. I know you're on the West Coast, but, um, you know, the, the UN is convening. And, and um, it was even just yesterday that um, um, the current leader of our nation, is, you know, addressed the UN and, um, you know, really um, had quite a lot to say about what uh, he didn't feel other entities, countries uh, were doing uh, well. And, um, and I do think that what you're talking about is systemic, right? And so there's multiple levels. There's sort of the macro level, the meso level, the micro level, mm -hmm. and the macro level, the systemic piece, I think is sort of like when you're a fish in water, you don't really realize it. You don't really think so much about it. We breathe air, we breathe oxygen. We don't think about it all that much mm -hmm. until we don't have it. If you have asthma, you think about it. If your air is polluted, you think about it. But otherwise, you don't really think about it. So it's just there. And to the degree that, I'll name it, patriarchy is, um, is present and systemically part of um, the fabric of the way in which we have structured our society, which really is nothing more, I don't think, than power over as opposed to power with, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what you're mm -hmm. talking about. That's sort of the... You know, as Gloria Steinem said, we're, you know, we're linked, we're not ranked. It's kind mm -hmm. of it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, more for you means less for me. So I need to get mine and we're in this constant race. And, and, and applying this to mindfulness and applying this to, you know, sort of looking at things through this mindful lens or how mindfulness can inform us at that micro level to then help perhaps change and shift the things like the culture that you're talking about to then help us start planting seeds at the root and the ground level so that we can start to decalcify mm -hmm. some of the systemic things like sexism or ableism or racism mm -hmm. and you know you can add your ism um i think is really important because when people can start to ground in their individual looking at what's here they can actually turn to what's challenging about what's systemically here also. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so, so well said. It's um, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to mindfulness uh, as a, a modality for supporting work in the world uh, is that it, it really, I, I have personally found no better set of tools for doing just what you just described, um, for preparing ourselves to starting with our own selves, um, seeing more clearly what, again, there is to be seen. So really coming into some kind of um, 
more authoritative, if you will, authoring, self-authoring relationship with our, with who we are, understanding the, the agency we have uh, and the role we play in creating a world that works better for everyone. And so mindfulness for me certainly is a key, if not the key, frankly, to engaging in my own ways with what might keep me stuck in not seeing opportunities that are available for me to help make a positive difference, starting with myself, for myself, but extending that out uh, to others. And um, so there's a, definitely a, a, a way in which mindfulness for me is about developing a right relationship with myself. Uh, it's ultimately in, about relationality as it applies in, some, in every domain of our experience. But certainly that is, that encompasses um, how it is that we relate to our own sense of self and what that means for how we interact with others. So that's one piece of it, just, you know, and, that, and there's a big, there's a lot to be said there and we could stay there, just how it is that mindfulness supports us in seeing ourselves um, in ways that support change in the world, in ways that support um, more effective, um, liberatory engagement with others. And that by itself, again, is a, that's a, there's a profound set of um, underlying um, kind of commitments that support that piece. Uh, and ultimately, depending on how one pursues mindfulness and, you know, to what extent one pursues not just the basic practices of sitting and becoming more aware of um, one's thoughts, emotions, sensations, becoming more um, sort of present to uh, all of that which, were, which, which arises as we move about the world and as in these packages we call our you know, our separate bodies. Um, the more we kind of are present to uh, what it means to really be alive, uh, the more all kinds of insights can arise about mm, the inherent interconnections we are all uh, living through and making manifest. Um, and for many of us, it can lead to a, a sort of a different way of being with the sense of the self that is fundamentally um, committed to as much as possible doing no harm. But again, as, as we all know, just that intention to do no harm doesn't mean, in fact, we, we won't. And so it's about a deeper commitment to being constantly engaged in the work of repair to the degree we need to be to minimize, again, the harm that we will do inevitably as human beings uh, in a world together. And so there are just so many ways that I think, again, as we look at just what it means to kind of, from the place of our, our relative uh, experience, the embodiments that we, you know, that we've been blessed to be able to inhabit in the world, um, from this place of 
you know, being the cisgendered female, racialized black, you know, in America at this time, didn't choose these things, but this is, this is, this is what showed up, right, in my own experience. And we each, you know, have that same kind of almost uh, absurd, right, experience that we just arrived on a, in a planet with a family, right, with a history, and yet we inhabit it, we, we come to appreciate, we come to attach and find a sense of value and meaning and purpose and all of those things. But mindfulness can ultimately help us hold our story, our bit, our piece, our position, our sort of piece of the cloth, if you will, with a certain kind of humility, a certain kind of, you know, a humility that recognizes it's just a piece in a huge mosaic. Um, we'll never fully understand this mystery that we're a part of. So there's a kind of humility that comes with that. Uh, there's also a sort of sense of awe that comes with it, like, and grace and gratitude that we do have these moments of life together to do the best we can with the time that we have. Um, yeah, there's just so many ways then that, uh, depending on how deep I would say that we go with our mindfulness practice, um, we can be supported in bringing about deeper and deeper transformations, many, you know, deeper and deeper changes on the ground that may ultimately lead to a, a different world, a different way of being with one another. I don't think these things necessarily happen overnight, either in ourselves, interpersonally or systemically. Uh, and they may not happen in ways that we ever get to see, you know, actually apprehend. Uh, and at the same time, I, I believe, I trust, I, there's evidence in my own experience that change is already is happening, that these practices do bring about changes. So, so there's some reason for hope <laughs> despite all of the challenges that we're in. Yeah, no, I, I love all of what you're saying, especially our relationality and our interdependence and, and you know, sort of that, again, going back to process and, um, you know, not specific to content or fixed states or rigidity, that we're really always sort of evolving, we're, or hopefully evolving, mm -hmm. that we're at least always shifting in some way. And, um, and that everything is sort of causal and, you know, dependent and, and the ways in which we set the... Um, the GPS, if you will, of our lives is going to be, if not fixed on a set destination, it's the compass, I should say, less the GPS, um, that we're orienting ourselves towards something, I think, once we open to mindfulness, once we open to this process, that is much more of a commitment to, as I call it, the persistence, as opposed to the resistance, for example. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. not defining so much as the anti, but what are we for? Exactly for if we're for love or if we're for connection or if we're for happiness then how do we go about that and um you know your work about um we can talk more about uh you know some of the the pieces that you've included in your book and also um in in some of the articles that you've written and understanding race and law effectively because i think you know one of the sort of evolutions in my own personal practice has gone from my personal practice, you know, mm -hmm. sort of an understanding of who am I really? What mm -hmm. am I about? How did I get here? All the things mm -hmm. you said, what's my positionality within the context? Where am I privileged? Where am I not? Mm -hmm. You know, all of these different things. And then how do I use that? But being grounded in a sense of, as one of my teachers says, inner nobility and dignity, 
and then moving forward outside to being able to affect change. When you're talking about um, racism, when you're talking about the law, when you're talking about um, what we're seeing now, not only in this country, but also in Europe and in other places, and how that sort of sense of contraction or myopia or limitation can be sort of, you know, neurophysiologically, we can look at the brain and the fear response and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. as opposed to bringing the prefrontal cortex online that mindfulness can do and all of those beautiful things that we know now. But how can we use some of these practices for our awareness in this way? And how can we maybe reimagine, given the way that this country was founded, legally when you're mm -hmm. looking at the history of Native Americans, the history of Black Americans, mm -hmm. how can we begin to take some ownership and begin that process of repair if we are in this process of waking ourselves? Yeah. Well, you know, for me, there's so many different ways to do it. There's so many different doorways into um, the processes by which we might repair, heal, regenerate, rebuild, start over. Um, I think a really important piece has to do with um, recognizing what it really means to, to, to interbe or to, to live in interdependence. Um, again, part of what the law has contributed to our consciousness is a kind of a false consciousness around the, um, the degree to which we are these separate, atomized, isolated entities, right? I mean, the law, of course, um, on the one hand, evolved this great notion of individual rights, which was very important historically to support um, a kind of a movement in the direction of liberating um, individuals, human beings, from oppressed structures, um, whether it be from feudalism, enslavement, um, the kind of oppression of, of, of sort of religiosity and relig religion, organized religion over individuals. So there is a way in which the idea of individual rights that um, is a legacy of the Enlightenment period and provided a foundation for the evolution of what we call constitutionalism. I mean, all of this is really rich and profound and certainly has provided um, a, a kind of an, a ground level of, of um, you know, sort of concepts to support the articulation of, uh, of, of pathways toward freedom for that many, again, many people uh, around the world have, grasped onto from that the human rights revolution evolved in the middle of the last century. So this notion of rights tied to individual um, human dignity, really, really profound and important. The question that I think should occupy those of us who have been privileged to be the beneficiaries of that discourse and those um, you know, uh, ways of, of organizing our political economy, the question we should be thinking about in the 21st century is to what extent have we kind of oversubscribed to the idea of individual individualism? Have we moved into this sort of hyper-individualism that makes it very, very, very hard to apprehend interconnectedness, interdependence, um, 
interrelational responsibility uh, and all that might flow from that in terms of, put it simply, how we are with one another, you know, what we owe to one another. Um, you know, I was just recently reminded of a, uh, a comment that someone made and has shared in social media realm about how 90% of mindfulness could be summarized as just good manners. I'm not sure I would go that far exactly, but the idea being that, um, you know, somehow along the way, with all of this sort of good information about our rights and, and you know, good grounding in this sort of philosophy of what we call liberalism, the small L, uh, liberal legal thought, everything that goes with it around rights and rule of law, somehow we've missed um, a deep understanding of what it means to just be well with one another. Um, we've been so defendant, so caught up in adversarial ways of, you know, as, as you as you alluded to before, like ensuring that our piece of the pie is, you know, not being compromised by somebody else, and you know, um, making sure that uh, our our identity group, ourselves, our, our those our familiars, um, are are you know protected and taken care of. That we've lost, I think, a lot um, along the way with regards to just what it means to, to effectively commune together, to be together in community, to have a sense of the we. Um, so I do think that part of what mindfulness can do as we sort of move from that, the, 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 what arises in personal practice and open up to that profound relationality that really is a gift of mindfulness practice for many of us, the profound sense that we're always inherently a part of something larger than ourselves. The very breath that we breathe, we didn't create. And without it, in short order, we wouldn't be here. The water we need to sustain ourselves, we don't create. Again, just to be profoundly present to that is a waking up to, to the reality that we're literally constantly interdependent. And so from there, to be aware of the, hmm, the truth of the fact that there is this sort of intersubjective space uh, that is alive, that arises between you and, and I, or those of us at, uh, in, a, in a room together, those of us in experiencing this conversation together uh, across the miles and through technology, there is a generative field that arises when human beings connect. It's more profoundly so, I believe, when we're in person, but this technology helps support it happening even when we are not. And we don't have language really in the you know liberal legal discourse for really acknowledging and um, honoring the we space. And we're going to need that. I think if we're going to really survive a period of so many challenges to the old ways, the world that we've built up, built up through individual rights discourse, right, which includes a world, for example, that has global warming as a, as a legacy, a world that has this constant battle between the sexes as a legacy. We have got to find another way. And I do think that um, these sort of ways of being mindful that apprehend the whole, that apprehend communal and um, intersubjective awareness building. Those are keys, I think, to helping build or hmm, build, but also just make us more aware of the power 
the profound power that is right here in us and between us um, through which we can know more profoundly what there is to be known, but also create uh, what is calling forth from us if we're to survive, I think, as a human, as a race uh, into the next century. Yeah, no, I really love all of your you're saying because it's not sustainable, right? What we're doing to our planet or to one another. And it's not, you can't keep extracting without planting, you know? So there has to be this um, more generative, as you say, um, field. And, and, you know, relationality does in fact have that inherent in it, right? It's building through these shared energies and moving um, upward and sort of spiraling sort of in a way um, mm -hmm. out. It's not... Right. Uh, you know, this samsaric, cyclical, you know, repeated circle necessarily, although it might be two steps forward and one step back. Mm -hmm. uh, what I really hear what you're saying is, is, you know, unfortunately, we've kind of moved somehow into a transactional yeah. relationality as opposed mm -hmm. to a heart relationality that, you know, especially as mammals is really who we are and what we're about, mm -hmm. as you were talking about, we're, you know, we're we're not we can't we couldn't have existed on our own um mm -hmm. as babies mm -hmm. and, and and it also reminds me that kind of what you're touching in on when we talk about relationality is what in some circles might be called the feminine or you know mm -hmm. the, the 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 sort of that other earthier kind of um principle mm -hmm. and one of my teachers um says that you know in our society we idealize the feminine in principle but we devalue it in fact and so in some ways, you know, we have a lot of ideas about um, what it should be or how we talk about it or think about it. But in fact, mm -hmm. as you were starting the conversation by saying it's not really, really there, it's not really supported by, we don't even have the Equal Rights Amendment um, mm -hmm. and constitutionality. Uh, you know, yes. women don't have equal rights in this country as we speak. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. And so also, you know, what's coming up for me, too, is this what what we've inherited is this notion of a binary around feminine and masculine which is also not sustainable and um also caught being called into question every day uh in so many different ways um whether it be from the the sort of um rise in the, the naming of gender fluid ways of um expressing ourselves as individuals on the one hand but also just in the ways that we're opening up to what it means to invite everybody to this conversation about what relationality really is and to name um, more richly the degree to which whether we are in terms of our conventional understanding, male or female, or see ourselves as partaking of the feminine or not, it's, it's part of who we all are. There's a part of every human being. Uh, each of us having been born of a woman, frankly, um, that has this inherent kind of relational aspect and dimension. And yet there is something to the ways in which we've shaped um, the so-called feminine and masculine and embodied it um, in these sort of binary ways that really I think uh, mindfulness can also help us turn more rightly and richly too. I do think that um, much of the work that I do is about uh, seeking to create spaces where we can turn to um, turn toward these deep and, and difficult 
in many, many ways, examination and exploration of the way we inhabit identity, whether it be around race, gender, sex orientation, the intersections of these with all the other sorts of different ways we identify ourselves or are identified by others, which vary so much depending on where we are um, in a particular time and place, right? Culture, um, nation, right? So many different variables. And the sociologist in me is aware of that, uh, that, you know, there are certain things that look pretty persistent across cultures. Uh, identity around gender and age, the sociologist will say, no matter where you are in the world, there's some way in which we're making something of age and gender, almost, um, you know, almost universal, universally, let's just say. But then when it comes to these other ways, the terms that we use may vary so much. Some cultures have a conversation about race that's kind of particularly important in that culture. For some cultures, something else may be more so, more to the fore. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's um, lineage in a certain way. So each of us as human beings, we're again embedded in time and place. And so there is this tension in mindfulness communities often between the universal experience of humanity and the embodiment, right? The brain, body, the universalities of that. And on the one hand, and, and, and the particular differentiations that we know to be a part of our lived experience. And so for me, my work has really been um, drawn towards helping uh, expand the sense that it's not either universal or particular. Uh, it's not particular evolved to universal. It's, it's all part of the great mystery of what it means to be alive, different doorways in, you go into the door of particular experience, me listening to your story, you listening to mine. And through that kind of experience in real time, the profoundness of our, again, interconnectedness, oneness, similarities in our differences. So I think, um, you know, to, 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 to take just that part of the work that I do that is about helping create greater spaciousness and capacity building around doing identity work, let's say, um, changing some of the narratives and some of the traditional ways we, 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 we think about identity, which to, you know, which to me is we're just scratching the surface with this. We're just beginning to figure out how to turn toward these aspects of ourselves in a way that apprehends the way the world is constructed today. Like, you know, there is a world in which something called gender is operating, something called race is operating. It doesn't, none of us have any real justice to pretend these things aren't happening. But at the same time, we can over-construct and, and um, over-reify, if you will, make too fixed these notions of, uh, of these concepts of ident around identity. So having that supple capacity to deal with the kind of contradictions, if you will, the paradoxes, there is and isn't something called race that's relevant in my everyday experience. Um, there is and is, is and isn't something called gender uh, that I can relate to in a certain kind of way. Um, that sort of radical openness and also um, a certain kind of adeptness with kind of using language as necessary to try to describe and point toward, as the Buddhists will say, something that's relevant in experience, but while recognizing all, all the while that we're only ever able to point toward the language itself, if we kind of try to attach and fix it too tightly, 
is its own constraint. And so that's where mindfulness to me is just this radical kind of opening up of capacity to, to sit in big um, relationship with what is. And we, again, when it comes to doing that around identity, I think we're just beginning. And there's a lot of tension between the, the kind of field of folk who talk about identity, like who are identity specialists, if you will, just social justice advocates on one hand, who haven't uh, embraced a mindful way of holding all of that, right? So bringing mindfulness to that conversation, but on the other hand, bringing the social justice language into the mindfulness conversation, right? So there's mutuality that needs to be engaged in and lots of good work to be done. But we're just beginning, I'm in it, you know, for forever. I honestly believe that it's not about this being side and ancillary to mindfulness. This is mindfulness. This is a part, uh, a profoundly um, an aspect of experience in this body, in this life, this very life. And so for me, this is just a, a kind of another doorway into this deep, rich path that we call mindfulness in the world, mindfulness applied. Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you, Rhonda. And, and you know, I, I, I often think of it as the both and and not the either or. Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's, and it's really, again, either creating or, you know, whatever, enough space so that more can be held. And, um, you know, and, and as you start to do that, you know, there's that whole thing about the salt in the teacup, yuck, the salt mm -hmm. in the bathtub or in the lake doesn't matter, you know, so meaning that you can't, you can taste it when it's too small and too narrow, but then you can't when there's more space around it. Um, we're winding down with time, but I do think though that it's worth noting that, um, you know, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams says this a lot, you know, none of us are free until we're all free. And, um, you know, she, I think is doing, um, this work, um, very much so front and center also, mm -hmm. and really appealing on the white or privileged communities, um, to, uh, begin doing particular education around the history of race in this country, how we were founded, how we got here in order to then be able to have a more informed dialogue with understanding how this applies to not only our own personal mindfulness practice, but then informing how we comport ourselves going forward. Absolutely. So could you just maybe touch on that before we close? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, again, I have used the concept of the, the, you know, in mindfulness, we talk about being present to the moments of our lives in a certain kind of way. And for me here, this is an opportunity to reflect on what we mean by the moment. And to me, it's this long, broad and deep moment that includes our history always, it's always in us. Uh, and it's an invitation to kind of, um, for all of us to look at how we got here as part of what it means to be here. In other words, right? This, this idea of mindfulness is just being about like this moment, this breath um, can lead to a kind of myopic uh, overly narrow ex, uh, ex exploration of what is to, there to be seen. And I, like um, Reverend Angel, uh, often em implore, right, invite, support, a way of holding the now that recognizes its um, deep uh, rootedness in what we conventionally call the past. But how past is it if in this very moment, uh, 
we engage with each other in ways that bear the marks of what we know about uh, the history of slavery, the history of female uh, uh, um, subjugation to men, to men in this country and around the world. How past is it, right? Uh, if we, as we go out, I go out, you know, in my environment here in San Francisco, and I see patterns of um, uh, immigration and and um, employment that bear the mark of the patterns of migration, forced migration. Um, uh, um, and immigration for, for, for the purposes of, of survival across the southern border, but also from Africa being brought here. In other words, the patterns, the, the hierarchies that we see today bear every bit the mark and the stamp of the so-called histories that we're talking about. And so uh, there's a way in which uh, I think mindfulness work definitely calls upon whites who have often, because of their experience in the majority, been supported and being kind of blind to the way in which this, these histories are still very relevant to their now, right? Uh, or have a particular uh, set of projects, have some have particular work to do to become more aware of how it is that history is right here in the present. Um, and I think there can be some kind of consternation around that because I think um, part of whiteness has been the construction around um, avoiding turning toward that history. Um, part of what it means to be white is to avoid not just the history, but any kind of pain associated with it, any kind of sense of suffering or responsibility associated with it. That's what it has meant to be white, is to be fully comfortable saying that was then and this is now. Um, I just learned that one of my one of my teachers, John Kabat-Zinn, um, his grandparents, I believe it was, came to this country um, with a name that uh, that was truncated to Cabot, right? A, a name that bore every bit the mark of their heritage in uh, in Europe, that would have marked him as more his family and his lineage as more of an outsider then was the case when they truncated that name to Cabot. Um, I'm gonna go and look at that, that articulation um, so that I can name the longer name when I have a conversation with him, which I will soon actually at the New York uh, Wisdom 2.0 event that's coming up October 23rd or 22nd or so. We're gonna be together in conversation with Anderson Cooper. I'm very much looking forward to this. Um, but people who are not able to come to New York can participate with us um, via online, um, just access to the conversation. But we will be talking about mindfulness and race. And one of the things that I'll hopefully have a chance to talk with them about before, during, or after, as we are friends in this journey, really is, you know, what is it? What is the work of whites to really look at their heritage, their immigration stories? What was given up in the way of um, deep relationship to subcultures that did not know themselves as white? in order to become white in this country. Uh, and, and the redemptive value that is yet to be uh, un, un, unraveled or opened up, that can come from just really looking with humility at all of that history and its legacies today. So yes, I, 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 I do believe that there is um, a, a profound set of ways that mindfully engaging with whiteness 
And that is something that is a project particular has particular meaning for people who are racialized white. But actually, if you grow up in a white supremacist world, which we all do, that means you're growing up, if you're deemed a success on any level, being invited to have some relationship and some orientation toward whiteness. And I know something about that myself. So it's a project for all of us to really look at how whiteness has impacted all of us. Again, that's different for each of us, but we have something to learn about that inquiry if we have been raised and acculturated in a white supremacist world. And that's also true for gender and sex orientation and all of those dominant, if you will, identities. What have we learned about maleness? All of us, no matter what our gender expression, that we have in some ways accommodated, traded, um, helped uh, make uh, hegemonic in our societies. What have we learned about heteronormativity? That regardless of our own gender or sex orientation expression, we in some ways have accommodated and made part of the, hege uh, the hegemony, like the power structure in our society. We are all in this or wouldn't be so deeply entrenched. And so that to me is a, the really challenging imitation of mindfulness for all of us to create spaces where we ongoingly interrogate the ways that we contribute to the maintenance of these hierarchies. Because we, again, I don't think we'd be where we are if, if, the, if, we, if we, we didn't have some work to do in those areas, all of us. Rhonda, I love what you've said and shared and um, Wisdom 2.0 is coming up in New York. I was there last year, I'll be there again. Yeah. I encourage all the folks, um, as you said, uh, to go and check that out online if you're not going to be in New York, uh, October 21st and 2nd, I think yeah. you mentioned. And, um, and also, um, you know, the work that you do, uh, I'll put up all of your information as well so people can learn more about you. And of course, when your book comes out, uh, I'm hoping that people will uh, snap it up and, and, and digest it. And, and the last piece is just to mention that to do that kind of work, at least around race, I know I found that there's a, a group in DC called whiteawake.org that does that kind of work around race, perhaps not particularly around um, the gender, or the orientation pieces, um, but we can start where we are um, around this racial piece. And I would like to just give them a shout out to support that also, because a lot of folks who are white identified say, where do I start? I don't know. I thought I learned this in school. And I'm like, I did too. I thought I did too, until I realized that I really didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you're right, wide awake. Um... Surge, Standing Up for Racial Justice is an organization. I don't know how much they're bringing mindfulness in, but I think in some of their local chapters they are. Um, the book that I'm writing does create um, practices that support this work as well. So, um, um, you know, Ruth King's uh, book, I know she's been one of your guests as well. There are, if we're interested, there are many resources, many more resources out there than used to be, and there will be more coming forward. So please stay tuned, stay connected. Um, we're in it together. Beautiful. Rhonda, I will let you go um, because you certainly have a lot of things to attend to, and I look forward to seeing you in October in New York City. Safe travels to you, and thanks again for your time and for being here on Wise Girl. Mm, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and an honor. Take good care. You too.